Hello. Passionate about sustainability, energy, and climate? You're in the right place. Welcome to Energetic. I'm Maureen Cornelis, and together we will engage with people who dedicate their lives to climate justice and making a just energy transition happen. They may be activists, scientists, policymakers, or other enthusiasts just like you. Let the life stories and insights inspire you to build a better future for people and the planet. Today, I have the pleasure to welcome Manu Birdbridge and Stefan Brzezarski. Stefan Brzezarski is one of the most influential voices in the energy vulnerability field. Stefan is a professor at the University of Manchester and the head of the Engager Network. Manu is a very committed ecologist and a research associate at the University of Manchester. We will be talking about the findings of their report on energy poverty in the private rented sector. This report is part of the Horizon 2020 NPOR project. They highlight the scale of the phenomenon of energy poverty and present some solutions on how to address it in the private rented sector. So, Stefan and Manon, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Can you tell me why is energy poverty in the private rental sector an important issue to address now? And why do you think it was overlooked until now? This is a question for both of you, but I hope maybe, Stefan, you can start. Sure. And thank you so much for inviting us here today, uh, Marina. It's a real pleasure to talk about this with Manon and with you and really to, to sort of get a chance to expand a little bit on some of our conclusions, some of our findings in this initial review of the issue. I think there are many reasons why the private rented sector has tended to be overlooked, ignored, marginalized uh, when we talk about the issue of energy poverty, which I should say itself also is something that for a long time was at the margins of the literature and really didn't receive much attention. And I would say that the primary reason here is the fact that generally people living in the private rented sector are some of the most vulnerable and some of the most challenging in terms of the properties that have to be addressed some of the most difficult part of the energy poverty problem. Here you have uh, really deep and structural questions around the very uh, the lower generally efficiency of the private rented sector in many, many countries. You also have the fact that it's a relatively politically invisible issue in other countries. So also you have the relative lack of data and visibility as well. And then you also have at the same time The fact that dealing with this particular problem is in itself a requires lots of coordination among different sectors, it requires very detailed research, which again in itself has been lacking given that energy poverty itself has been ignored. So when you take all of this together, I think it's quite easy to see, I hope, why this particular part of the housing stock historically, and also not just housing stock, but the overall regulation of, uh, of energy has historically been overlooked uh, when it comes to energy poverty. Manon, would you like to add something on this? I feel that you did a lot of research on the policy side. So what did you notice when you started do your research on the policy that try or at least partially address the question of, of energy poverty in the private rented sector? Yes. So I think Just to add on the previous question, one of the reasons it's really important to address poverty in the rented sector now is that 
the number of people living in the sector is increasing and more people are staying in rented housing for longer. And that's due to uh, a range of sort of socioeconomic issues, a decline in social housing, reduction in housing benefits, increasingly unaffordable home ownership and so on. And so as Stefan was saying, people in the rented sector struggle with related issues to a much greater degree than the general population and as well as the quality of rented homes in many cases being very poor. So something that has come up in policy is that the issue of split incentives in the sector, so between differing interests between landlords and tenants, there's some difficult and quite complex power relations between different stakeholders and that can mean that actually finding targeted policies that address both of these stakeholders' needs can be quite difficult. So when we analyse policies, we analysed around 40 different ones. Under half uh, were actually aimed at low-income groups in the sector. And over two-thirds of these policies were general, so they were targeted at a range of different housing types, not the rented sector. So I think so two of the big issues there are that they're not targeted enough at the rental sector and they're not targeted at the low-income end of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And in actually, when we already met and talked about the, this topic and one of the questions that was raised was about uh, some kind of renting permits that might be one uh, of the solutions to actually oblige homeowners to perform those kind of works. And it's the kind of policy that is not really, let's say, popular among certain uh, categories of uh, homeowners, but maybe it could be one of the axes of development indeed. So what kind of policy surprised you the most or something that you really found that was uh, original and compelling and could be actually replicated uh, elsewhere and could really have success in overcoming this challenge? Yes, I think something that's come up with different stakeholders, so particularly the International Landlords Union, um, is that the different stakeholders have different views that landlords want certain things and tenants want certain things and that often these two groups can't reconcile their differences of opinion and that leads to energy efficiency measures not being implemented or, you know, one group is left unhappy. So I think something that I really liked was a program going on in Lille in France and it's an energy mediation scheme where an approved energy advisor goes and talks to um, the landlord and tenant and they have a mediated discussion, uh, you know, differences of opinion are, are discussed and they come to a solution that works for everybody. And so in this, the different groups sort of visions of energy efficiency for their property is achieved. And so I think having that level of discussion was quite a nice solution to trying to solve the issue of the split incentive. And yes, it, it sounds indeed uh, quite a good initiative because it really empowers everyone and leaves everyone the possibility to talk and express what their uh, issues may be and what their, the, also find solutions together. And uh, indeed, it sounds quite a, a nice project. Stefan, is there any project or initiative in particular that you found was really uh, positively surprising or even actually negatively? I would be interested in that too. Yeah, so if you do, I mean, our uh, report will be published soon and there's a wide range of policies listed there. And if you look through them, uh, if anyone, anyone can read that, obviously in the public domain, um, and you can really see we've classified them into different categories. I think 
to answer this question, I'd, I'd need to look at slightly the, the broader context, which is, you know, this issue of the private rented sector as, from where I and greater range rates of energy poverty in it from where I'm standing uh, has to do with uh, how the private rented sector itself is regulated and particularly the amount of investment there is, the types of tendencies that you get and uh, indeed how what sort of incentives more broadly landlords uh, have and tenants have to treat the housing uh, that they live in a more sustainable way. So I think the first, if, if you look at the European context, the countries that tend to do better on this are the countries where tenancies are more stable, where investment in the private rented sector isn't something that, it's not for just investment's sake, but it's treated as a housing it's a form of housing that is available to people as opposed to just a form of investment. And that makes a big difference where tenants' rights and landlords' rights as well are clearly spelled out. And there isn't a lot of what we might call it informal markets that are under the radar and lots of exploitation. So I think for that to happen, you need to have those conditions in place. And you do have them in countries like Germany, for example, and others where you do have a huge rented sector you also do have better regulations in place for that to happen. And I would say on the other scale, you have countries like the UK, where, you know, part of the rented sector is, is okay, but then you also have aspects of the of the rented sector where you have uh, bigger, where there's challenges around, particularly speculation uh, in terms of housing investment resulting in, and also lots of exploitation and so on, and, and uh, landlords perhaps not behaving in ways that are, very tenant friendly and so on. And, and in that part of the sector, part of it's um, called housing and multiple occupancy, we have some of the biggest problems. So it's a long discussion that we could go into for hours around why that particular sector exists in the UK, the HMO sector, which is part of the broader PRS. But you certainly in countries where that doesn't exist, things are better. So if we start from that premise, then I think the policies that work most are policies that do one of two things. So first of all, really ensure that there's investment in this part of the housing stock and it's treated equally like everyone, everything else. And it's not just treated as some kind of special category when you do have subsidies for housing that somehow it's excluded. So that's the first thing. And then the second is where you have better forms of communication, more stability in rents, support for all the parties involved and essentially a, a better institutional environment. Looking at the policies that we analysed, I thought that Belgium had some really good ones where they really uh, invested in, they gave grants, they did energy, they, they did like scans of the, of uh, to identify vulnerabilities and efficiency, but also grants for social insulation for rental apartments. You have that in Flanders. And, and so on. I think Belgium really is probably one of the countries where this is done in the in the best way. And then I, in the list of policies, and I'm sure Manon can comment more on this, that we had, there's lots of policies that just provide energy advice. And for me, that's like the lowest rung of the ladder of the hierarchy of what you can do. Because energy advice is good, but in many cases, if a tenant, if that's all they get is energy advice, then that doesn't go very far because... They might already be doing those things. They might, and they often they do around energy conservation. And what, in fact, a lot of these homes require is better investment in energy efficiency and upgrading the whole quality of the of the property. And I think that's perhaps where it's missing in terms of a lot of the policies that we've seen. 
and there's not enough recognition that that particular sector requires investment as well. Manon, would you like to comment on this in particular? Yeah, I'll just add that, um, as Stefan said, advice is important. You know, sometimes people don't realize, you know, the small things you can do in your house, like add a draft excluder and uh, change your light bulb LED. But a lot of people do know that. And a lot of the evaluation in the policies that we looked at that were merely educational or advice based sort of reflects on the fact that people were already doing the actions that were advising so it what it was sufficient to really get to the the root of the issue which often has sort of deep rooted structural and social causes and as stefan said you know the whole house or household dwelling needs to be upgraded in terms of energy efficiency better appliances uh, insulation new boilers and so on Yeah, indeed, it's also about convincing your neighbors or other people who might be living in the building uh, as well as you or like the condominium management, etc., to to perform some work. And sometimes it can be extremely complicated to get to an agreement or on a financial point of view, it might be extremely complicated. I was just reading that, for instance, in Italy, there is currently a bonus of 110% to uh, retrofit entire buildings, entire condos. But apparently it is so complicated to get those kind of fundings that uh, only 13% of the funding was was used uh, until recently, of the available funding was used until now because of all the bureaucracy and all the processes. So indeed, there is there seems to be a big contrast between the needs that might be immediate and the solutions that might be structural and take a, a lot of time and a lot of different parties have to agree on, on the solution. Stéphane Manon, is there any other shortcoming that you see or any reason why this kind of uh, renovations don't happen? Do you see any, like maybe cultural reasons or any bureaucracy issue? Why is the private rented sector the most problematic sector for energy uh, vulnerable households? I'm happy to comment this. Um, I mean, the the thing is, you know, going back to our earlier conversation. So the the first issue that we have still, and it's it's very difficult to make one general statement because there are different there are different circumstances in each country in in the European Union and Europe more broadly. So. There are different reasons why this sector tends to get neglected in policy. But I think one of the problems generically from why we don't get enough investment is that it's institutionally quite complex. It's more complex than even the social rented sector, which has tended to be actually, if you look at where policies have been, it's tended to, to be upgraded much more. And it's now one of the most efficient housing sectors, particularly in some countries from an energy point of view. So I think. The fact is that you here you have just quite a few interests involved. You have landlords. Sometimes those uh, building, those um, dwelling units will be, as you mentioned before, in um, in buildings where you have then the housing association. Then you have the tenants, uh, which may be changing. There might be some level of instability from from that point of view. So in fact, you may have three or four different actors involved. And it's one property that needs to be renovated, right? And then they all have maybe slightly different interests uh, here. And then you've got on top of that, the regulatory framework in each country, which may treat these actors differently. So often, I think what we've ended up, because when you have this policy of 
buildings first and renovating things for, you know, objects first, as opposed to people first, there tends to be a focus on properties, on situations, on relations, institutional relations that are the, the simplest to deal with, not the most difficult ones to deal with. So that's why you know, it's like the low-hanging fruit. So that's why a lot of the policies, and we can see this traces of this even in like in the renovation wave, in national programs, it certainly happens a lot in the UK. It's happened in many other European countries as well. You know, whenever you've got this more complex institutional setup, the policies that come forward for housing renovation and so on, just can't deal with it. Uh, they're not designed to cover more complex situations. And I think that's why we end up with private rented housing and some other types of housing as well. It's not just private rented, but also things like temporary accommodation and so on for asylum seekers and so on. They tend to remain at the margins of, of policy and as a result suffer from particular forms of neglect. I should say it's not always the case and there are countries uh, particularly in Central Europe, where you do have, where this uh, housing sector is involved more strongly in policy, where there are institutional structures to um, support uh, housing renovation. But then associated with that, then you might have other issues like raising of rents after renovations and some form of gentrification. People call it renoviction, resulting from the renovation of private rented properties. So there are other dynamics that results sometimes from successful renovations as well. Generally, I would say just more complex institutional and, and social setup and just policies aren't really well designed to deal with it often. Manon, do you have any anything to add? Yeah, I was going to say that, especially with the sector being increasingly financialized, you know, people are investing their money into housing, then rent and then create uh, generate capital off of this housing is that if something it, I think it that makes it problematic because if you're not going to see a return on your investment as it were when you renovate a house the tenant that will benefit if you're running housing like a business it doesn't necessarily make financial sense you want to maximize your return on your investment so I think seeing housing as a sort of I don't know like an, an investment of financial gain then you start creating issues within it and that's not to say all landlords treat tenants in this way or their properties in this way but I think you do see that and that's where some of the issues are rooted in. Yeah indeed this question of the uh, financialization of the housing sector was uh, something that really struck me when I read your first report or one of the first drafts of the report. I wasn't conscious or aware how much links there were between, let's say, economic expansion and capitalist expansion and the expansion of housing. But it's really logical when you think about it and uh, how the markets have evolved in the past uh, 50 or 60 years. And that's why I really recommend our, our people who are listening to us right now to, to read this report because you, you will find a lot of very surprising and and, um, uh, eye-opening evidence of dynamics that are at, at stake and that I found really, really fascinating. And I would like your comments actually on the renovation wave because Stefan mentioned it a little bit, but there is this huge idea at European level that we should uh, accelerate the level of uh, the rate of 
energy performance renovation from 1% at the moment to 3% per year. And do you think it will or it can uh, so far address the question in the private rented sector? How do you see that? Or how do you think it would it could be used as an instrument for member states in the coming years? I, uh, I've not been following all of the debates on the renovation wave very, very recently because it, it's, it's evolving very fast and there's a lot happening on that front. So I can only make some general comments and based on what I know from maybe about four, five, six months ago. One thing that's not entirely clear to me is how the renovation wave will translate into policies at the member state level and particularly what the implications of the renovation wave are for um, different regulatory provisions at the European scale, or for that matter, the member state scale level as well. So is it going to translate not just into money, but also different forms of regulation and organisation? So that, that bit is not clear to me, because I think it will cascade down in that direction. I think it's a broad level commitment. It's certainly going in the right direction. It's what we need. I think it's a wonderful idea to be ambitious, to have almost like a Marshall plan for the renovation of housing in the UK and to involve not just new housing in this, but the existing housing stock as well. So from that point of view, it's all really wonderful. What does worry me sometimes when I read it, these broad level commitments, uh, when I read the discourse around them, you know, they all talk about how they're going to um, improve quality of life for people, how they're going to decrease greenhouse gas emissions, how it's a response to energy poverty. You know, all that's correct and all that can happen. But then also there's like, um, along that, you see things like digitally friendly renovations, enabling measurements of energy co energy consumption. So you have this other discourse, you know, which, which comes with, I think that whole sort of smart agenda as well and an ecological modernization agenda as well comes with it. And that does worry me slightly because what is sort of missing from this discourse, and I mean, you can't expect the European Commission to be politically radical <laughs> or, you know, I think that's, it's okay. I think they're they're really doing as much as they can within their mandate to be sort of sustainable and, and just and so on. But I think... Still, you read the discourse and you see what that's translating into, and it's still based on on this, I would say, somewhat outdated notions of around environmental unsustainability, and those notions are primarily around what we call the deficit model. Um, the deficit model being a deficit of knowledge, deficit of behaviour, or for that matter, a deficit in the housing stock. And that sort of worries me a bit. The, the place where that comes from worries me a bit because I would argue that the deficit model has been shown time and time again not, not to work, that more fundamental transformation of how things are regulated, how things are run, uh, and particularly the very deep injustices that exist cannot happen without uh, deep political participation, but also disruption, the possibility for disruption, the possibility for contestation, and really listening to people and listening mm -hmm. to everyone and making sure that everyone's involved. And that aspect is just missing from the discussion right now. And I don't think anyone really knows fully how to integrate it. 
you know, this comes from the more technical energy building renovation experts. It doesn't come from the social and political side of things. And that to me is signals trouble on the horizon, as it were. And, you know, we'll see where this goes, but I think it, its limits are st will be felt in the years to come, precisely because of the foundations on which it is, uh, it is being built. Yes, as you mentioned earlier, it has to be people first and not only building first or a solution or let's say technical solution first. About this point, we are actually recording in March 2021. And in March 2021, it's uh, the months for women's rights. And we are actually still noticing that uh, the gender issues com continue to be completely overlooked in the energy and climate policies. How is the situation actually in the private rented sector? How do you see actors integrate those issues? And what is actually NPOR doing on this direction? Well, gender inequality and uh, women's rights is something that I'm very passionate about. And I'm just starting to, you know, have my eyes open towards um, how this interacts with energy poverty and vulnerability. But as you said, I think it's an issue that's been largely overlooked until quite recently. I saw a good phrase by a paper by Caitlin Robinson saying that energy is seen as gender neutral. You know, it's not seen as having a gender dimension, whereas actually, you know, women are more likely to be in vulnerable situations that can then expose them to the negative impacts of energy poverty. It's also gender inequality is tied to other sort of axes of uh, vulnerability like race, class, disability, age and so on that have also not been, to my knowledge, uh, deeply researched in relation to energy poverty in, in the rented sector particularly. So I think it's something that we really need to look at. And it's something that the MPOR project will be looking into. Um, and I look forward to researching that in more detail. Stefan, do you have anything to add on this? Yeah, I think it's a, a, the, one of the most uh, valid points uh, that can be made in this whole discussion that, that we really, that there's a whole host of vulnerabilities, starting with gender and then going on to uh, ethnicity, to... Mm -hmm. Uh, refugee status to all kinds of other other aspects that just don't get included in the debate. But, you know, you can't, if you have a, as you said, a building first approach, then how do you even open that, those questions? How do you even quite open those questions up? And I think this again brings us to that point, which we may have mentioned before, which we, tr we tried to bring across with the report with, with Mano, that, You know, whenever you look at like energy poverty or the private rented sector, you can't treat these things in a sort of very narrow and I would say also technocratic ways. It tends to be the case very often where somehow energy poverty is seen as a sort of an isolated thing where, right, it's whatever, incomes, prices, energy efficiency and so on. You know, where there's in fact wider questions outside of energy that just need to be brought into into the debate. And uh Energy poverty is just an expression of those wider forms of injustice and inequality that you cannot ignore. And in the in the private rented sector, I think, just as Manon said, we often find some of the most vulnerable people from a gender point of view or from an ethnicity point of view, uh, from disability point of view, we find them in the rented private rented sector. So this notion of intersectionality really comes uh, comes through very powerfully. Mm, so one of the interesting challenges, I think, in the future 
will be to develop, uh, first of all, better methods to research these problems, understanding them not just, like, say, in very binary categories, or, uh, but really through wider systems of injustice and oppression. And then also finding and evaluating which sort of policies, which sort of approaches work to address them or make them worse. Because there are instances where certain policies, by being blind to these types of injustices, why they purport to resolve the problem of, I don't know, energy injustice or sustainability or what have you, they in fact make it worse because they reinforce those injustices even further. So I really look forward to opening up those dimensions in the project. I think we've we've tried to make them as visible as we can from the beginning through these reports that we published. That's great. I think it's a very nice way of wrapping things up this way. I wish you really the, the very best for this uh, project. And I'm looking forward to uh, reading the following reports because I think that you are touching really important matters that have been so far uh, neglected or overlooked. And uh, we need to shift the focus from uh, energy poverty to uh, as a, a narrow subject to uh, energy justice in general and housing justice too. And uh, I assume that the uh, renovation wave and the just transition in general are, are quite a good platform to do that. Is there anything you would like to add or can I just thank you so much for your time and tell you, see you next time? I mean, thank you so much for these uh, fascinating questions. Uh, it's been a real pleasure talking about this. However difficult these questions are, I think it's it's really nice to be able to cover them uh, in in such depth. Thank you. Thanks to also your very very incisive questions. Thank you for inviting us to speak on your podcast, and I look forward to uh, getting deeper into these issues. Just starting to unpack in the M4 project. That's great. Thank you so much, Stefan and Manon, and uh, thank you. Bye. Thanks for listening to Energetic. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into sustainability and the just energy transition with the most inspiring stakeholders. All links and resources are in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like this podcast, why not recommend it to a friend or a colleague? To continue the conversation, head on over to Twitter or LinkedIn. Thank you for lending your ears. That's all for this episode. Until next time.